Well, I don't know about you, but I feel like I could, I'm just, I feel satisfied after having heard the opening of Walt's prayer. Thank you for that, brother. What an incredible reminder of what we're celebrating at Christmas, the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy. I could just sit and listen to those prophecies read all day long. Just what glory we find in the Old Testament. We consider that all of it points to this Lord Jesus Christ. So good morning to all of you and Merry Christmas. I know that some of you will not be able to attend the Christmas Eve service this coming week, so I just want to take this opportunity to wish all of you a joyful Christmas with your family. And what I really mean to say is that you will have a Christmas full of Christ. That's my hope. You know, we all say Merry Christmas. I know that became controversial a long time ago. Uh, But the hope is that when we say Merry Christmas, what we mean is have a Christmas full of Christ. If you would, go ahead and go with me now in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. Romans 5, 6 to 11. Back in November, when I decided to stick with our Romans series for Advent, I wasn't quite sure where we would end up the Sunday before Christmas. That's kind of the big Christmas service, I guess, traditionally. So uh, I didn't really plan that out. I wanted it to unfold as, as it would naturally and not sort of artificially create a structure. But I really do think that we could not have a better set of verses for celebrating Christmas than what we have before us today. A better set of verses for helping us see the importance of Christmas. And let me be more specific, the importance or significance of Christ's coming into the world. Because that is what we celebrate at Christmas. We are celebrating the coming of Christ into the world. And so it behooves us to consider the significance of that very Christ. Who is that Christ? What did he come to accomplish? And of course, what did he come to accomplish with regard to us? And this text answers it so very well. As I said last week, the repeated by Christ and through Christ language of this passage throughout chapter 5, really extending forward, reminds us that everything good flows through him. I can remember back, I guess it was probably uh, 2008 or so, uh, reading Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper for the first time. And I remember a portion of that book, he was talking about everything purchased by Christ at the cross. Everything that we have down to the most minute details of our lives, the experiences of our lives, all good purchased for us at 
the cross, through this Christ. And we see this language, by Christ, through Christ, all throughout, reminding us that all flows through him. Love, hope, comfort, joy, peace. Are these not the words of Christmas? These are Christmas words, whether you really celebrate Christmas or not. These are the words of cultural Christmas, and these are the words of Christmas for Christians. But without this Christ, these words mean absolutely nothing. All of these words flow by him and through him. They are mediated through Christ. And not just the words, but all that those words entail. That we could speak on for hours, for days, for months. Love, joy, peace. Incredible, heavy words. Words and their meaning coming only through this Christ. The title for the sermon this morning is The Love That Sustains Our Hope. You'll see that up there. The Love That Sustains Our Hope. Last week, we looked at the results of our justification. As we entered into Romans chapter 5, that was really the main idea. Since, therefore, we have been justified, as we enter into chapter 5, that's the, the, the big idea, is Paul is going from his teaching on justification by faith, and he's looking at the results of that justification, the results of our right standing before God. So last week, we looked at, just by way of review, we looked at two big results of that justification. First, our new relationship. We now have peace and access. We saw that we have peace with God. We've been reconciled with God, and we have access to Him. We have access to His grace. We stand in grace. We stand in grace, immovable, through Jesus Christ. So we have this new relationship with the Father through Christ into grace in which we stand at peace with God. Amazing. And then we saw our new rejoicing, the second big result, our new rejoicing. We now have joyful confidence in our newfound hope. This is a hope of God's glory which, will, which we will share as we are glorified with Christ a hope that grows through suffering, that not a single bad thing, so-called bad, not a single adverse experience in this life, a single discomfort is wasted, but is all for the purpose of our growth in hope. So a hope that comes through suffering and a hope that will not disappoint. That's where Paul ended as we came to the end of our passage last week in verse 5, that this hope that we have will not put us to shame. We will not, left, we will not be left fools, pitiable fools, but it will not disappoint. So why? Why won't this hope disappoint? And there's one answer. It's a short answer, and it's love. That's what we saw when we came to the end of our passage last week. We, get, we got the first part of the answer, this love answer. We got the first part of that last week. The love of God 
poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit gives us assurance. We talked last week about how the Spirit himself cries out within us, Abba, Father, so that God's love towards us is poured into our hearts subjectively, experientially, so that we experience that love that God has for us in our very hearts. So this hope will not disappoint because God has given us this love in our hearts. But that's just the first part of this love answer. The second part comes today where we move from the love of God experienced in the heart to the love of God shown in history. That's where we move as we come now into verses 6 through 11. The objective love of God. Look, see, God loves you. So know his love, feel his love, experience his love by the Holy Spirit. And know his love presented objectively in history for all to see and marvel at. This is the love that sustains our hope. This is the love that holds up the hope that we have today and every day and as we celebrate Christmas this year. So if you would go ahead and stand with me. We're going to read our text here. And I'm going to read all of Verses 1 through 11, so chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, but our focus today will be, as I said, on verses 6 to 11. So I've just summarized, hopefully, uh, verses 1 to 5, and so you can see that unfold as we read it here. This is God's Word. This is God's Word as God inspired it by His Holy Spirit through the writing of the Apostle Paul 2,000 years Ago. This is perfect and profitable for God's people. Let's read it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And then here is our text for today. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice 
in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we go through his word that he would give us all attentive minds. That's hard, I know. Our minds are, it's, it's busy time. I was in Target yesterday. It was insane, uh, absolutely insane. Uh, the line was wrapped around the side of the store. Uh, so uh, maybe you need to go to Target this afternoon and you're thinking about that. Just a lot of things going on. It's busy. But let's ask the Lord to help us just focus our minds to, uh, to receive his word with our hearts, to delight in the Jesus whom we are celebrating this Christmas and every day of the year. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so very grateful to come now to your holy scriptures. The same holy scriptures that Walt just quoted earlier in his prayer as he reflected on all those prophetic scriptures, all those holy writings from of old, from thousands of years ago, hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus Christ, 1,500 years before Christ in the case of Moses, 700 years before Christ in the case of Isaiah. Lord, all these prophecies that point us forward, pointed those people forward to Christ, and and they just remind us of the veracity and reliability of, of your scriptures, and of the Christ in whom we trust. They show us, Lord, that the Bible is to be trusted, that your word is self-authenticating. It shows its own glory. It shows itself to be a treasure. We don't need archaeological discovery in Iraq or some scholar to come along and tell us we should believe the Bible. The Bible shows its own power, majesty, and glory. And God, we praise you for that, even as we consider that this morning, the Christ of Christmas, how much the Scriptures are held up in Christmas. God, we thank you for this Christ. We, we thank you that he is our friend, that he is our brother as Hebrews calls him, that he is our Lord, our master, that he is our redeemer, that he is the suffering servant and lamb of God who takes away our very specific sins and hides them as far as the east is from the west, that he brings us to you, Father, makes us your children. We praise you that you have united us with Christ. You have made us partakers with him of his inheritance. And you have given us through him, as Peter says in Acts 2, you have poured out your spirit, the spirit of the risen Christ upon us, your people. And that's why we're here today, Father. We're here to worship you in the spirit. We live according to the spirit. And so we pray that this day we would walk in the spirit that we would listen in the Spirit, that we would apply your word to our very own hearts in the Spirit, and that this preaching would be done in the Spirit. God, we ask now that your grace would be with us, and that you would build up your saints, and that you would save sinners. God, that you would make your glory known this morning in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title, as I said, is 
the love that sustains our hope. And uh, frequently I wrestle with titles because I, I really do believe the title is, is significant because it conveys the main idea of the text, the main idea of the sermon. And so the title's meant to get at what is this text about? And so you're able to see the title and have a basic idea of, of what this, this God means for us through the writer, the, the human writer, what God means for us to take away. And so the love that sustains our hope is what I opted for, but I'll, I'll give you the other two that I considered, a love foundation for a lived out hope or redeeming love for rock solid assurance. I struggled with all of these, but ultimately wanted to be as clear as possible in conveying the idea. The love that is underneath our hope. We have a grounds. We have a very, very strong grounds for the hope we have in salvation. And it is this incredible love of God. So two things to consider this morning as we go through this passage. First, the sacrifice for sinners. And you'll see those up on the, on the slide. The sacrifice for sinners and secondly, the security for saints. So let's go first to the sacrifice for sinners. And for this, we are looking at verses 6 to 8. The sacrifice for sinners. So look at those verses again. We'll read through them carefully. Verses 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In these three verses, Paul takes two topics and weaves them together beautifully. And so here they are. These are subpoints, if you will. You can write them down. Uh, if you would like, but these are two topics that he weaves together beautifully in these three verses. So here they are. First, the condition that we were in, and secondly, the character of God's love towards us. So the condition that we were in and the character of God's love towards us. So first, the condition that we were in. Notice the three words used here to describe human beings. Sons of Adam. The next passage we'll come to, starting in verse 12 of chapter 5, we'll, we'll see how Christ is the second Adam. We see Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. In Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Well, here in verses 6 to 8, Paul tells us what it is to be in Adam. And we are all in Adam. If you are a human... You are born in Adam. And so what is that condition? And the three words he uses here are weak, verse 6, ungodly, verse 6, and sinners, verse 8. You could also understand those to be this, helpless, godless, and lawless. That's the human condition. Helpless, godless, and lawless. And then, to make matters worse, as we talked about last week, just a couple of verses later, the word enemies is added to this litany. So we are also 
considering all these things, helpless, godless, and lawless, we are also enemies of God. Hostile, haters of God, and even more importantly, those who stand under his condemnation. Human beings are not friends of God. Not friends of God, but his enemies. Let me say this to you. Make no mistake about it in our culture. Even the nicest unbeliever you know, the nicest, friendliest, sweetest, presumably most self-giving, whatever, fill in the blank. The nicest unbeliever you know is an enemy of the living God. Just let that settle. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we welcome you, but we want you to understand that as it stands, you are an enemy of your creator, an enemy of your maker, an enemy of this God. Not reconciled, but at enmity with God. And this condition is shared in common by all people of all time. And so, as we've seen before, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to 320, we get a sentence like this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That well-known verse, Romans 3:23. But I want to give you two other verses that make this abundantly clear. And in these verses, Paul is speaking to Christians in terms of what they used to be. And so we find Ephesians 2, 1. Listen to the way he starts that chapter. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were like that too, believer. So that sentence that I just directed to the unbeliever, that was you before you became a believer, Christian. And then listen to the way Paul describes it in Titus 2, verse 3. For we ourselves were once, at one time, we ourselves were at one time foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. By the way, if you want to know what's wrong with our world, that's it. No political party, no elected official, no vaccine. Nothing is going to solve that problem, that tension in society, that uproar among peoples. Nothing will settle that but this Prince of Peace, whom we celebrate at Christmas. This Christ and the new heaven and new earth, the eternal kingdom that he will bring in which righteousness will dwell in the hearts of his people. There will be no more uproar in that perfect society. So that is the way Paul describes, as we see there in Titus 3 and Ephesians 2, that is the way Paul describes the human condition, even for the Christian. But in each of those verses, I love this, in each of those verses that I just cited, Romans 3, Ephesians 2, and Titus 3. Listen to where they go next. 
after stating clearly the human condition, listen to where Paul just can't wait to get here. Romans 3.24, justified by his grace as a gift. Ephesians 2.4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Titus 3 verses 4 and 5, but Love that word. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. That's exactly what we find here in Romans 5. Our condition met by God's great love. And that brings us to our second point here, and that is the character, or our second sub point here the character of God's love towards us. So we're looking at the sacrifice for sinners. And we've seen the condition that we were in. And now I want you to see that what meets that condition that we were in is the character of God's love towards us. Now here, we really need to take a careful look at the logic of Paul's argument. By the way, this is just a a quick little plug for expository preaching. One of the problems with topical preaching is that typically you have an idea like hope or love and you go and you find verses. You do that on Google. You go and you find verses that will fit under that category. And then you pull all those verses together and you already have a pretty good idea what you're going to say. And then you look at those and you figure out what's in those different verses. You say a few things about it. But here's the problem with that. So much of what we are meant to understand and therefore apply to real life is embedded in the logic of the New Testament, Old Testament author's reasoning. It's it's embedded in the logic of their writing. And so you have to let it unfold logically so that you can understand how all the different themes are woven together to fall on the soul. And the Holy Spirit takes that and changes people's lives. That's what's at stake. So just a plug for taking things in their context. But that's what we see here. We have to carefully look at the logic of Paul's argument. He is drawing a comparison, a contrast between what is found on the human level and what God has shown us about himself. So what do we find on the human level? Verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. It may be, it may be that in the course of human events, we will be able to compile a short list of people who have died for a friend or people who have died for someone they believed to be a good person, an upstanding kind or generous person. It may be if we could search through all the histories of all the peoples in the world, we'd be able to collect a small group who have been willing and who have indeed died for someone whom they deemed to be a good person. Perhaps in the annals of human history, we could find a few. 
But what Paul is saying is, even that is going to be scarce. It really will be few. Clear away the myths. Clear away the legends. And get down to real life. It will be scarce. Few would even potentially fit in that category. What God has done. Listen to this, Christian. Listen to this, Christian. What God has done is unfathomably greater. God sent Christ to die for his enemies. Those who stand against him and those who hate him. Those who are under his wrath. God sent Christ to die for those who hate him. Let me say this to you about Christmas Christmas is about a baby born to die for his enemies. A baby born to die for his enemies. That is the clear teaching of this passage. Remember chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then you fast forward from verse 18 to verse 30, and you get this little descriptor. Now, we get all of, this descript, all of these descriptors of sin at the end of Romans 1, but one of those that you get is haters of God. So the wrath of God stands over mankind, and when you go through all the different sins, you locate the fundamental problem. Haters of God. Haters of his honor. Haters of his glory, haters of his law, haters of his created order, just haters of this God. Lovers of self, haters of God. Listen to the way Paul describes describes it in verses 6 and 8. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, or at that time in being weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Then the very well-known verse, verse 8. You probably memorized this. If you grew up in church, this is definitely, this is a John 3.16 type verse. This is one, if you've grown up in church, you probably have encountered many times. But God shows or demonstrates or proves his own love. It could be translated his very own love. His, his own love. It, it, it's emphatic here. It, it's drawing a distinction. Paul is drawing a distinction between what he's just described, the so-called love, scarcely dying for a good person of humanity, to this grand love of God, his own love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did not die for you when you were almost there. He didn't die for you when you were 5% there or 10% there. He died for you when you were not there at all. And in fact, you were running, sprinting in the opposite direction. Just a couple of verses later, Christ is referred to as God's Son. By the death of his son. You know, it's hard when you grow up in church. You just, you just don't feel the weight of these kinds of things. Like you do if you're coming to. I've, I've met people who were converted, you know, in college. And it's like all of a sudden they start reading the Bible. Like, wow, this is amazing. They start reading these ideas. God gave his son. 
his very own son. God brought enemies to himself. These, these ideas become so familiar. They become too familiar to us as Christians. They lose their weight. They lose their power. God giving his very own son for his enemies. Christ giving his life, the Father sending his son to be slaughtered for his enemies, and no basis whatsoever for this love outside of God himself. He did not look on those who were worthy of his love. Now let me say something about this. If we understand election to be conditional, that God before time looked down into the future and he chose those who would believe in him, how do we make sense of this? He chose us in Christ. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons, Ephesians 1 tells us. Not a love that looks down through the portals of history and sees the merit of faith and sees a believer and says, they'll believe, I'll give them everything but looks down into the future and simply chooses you because of absolutely nothing in you. How grateful we ought to be to this God who chose us in Christ and who loved us while we were still enemies. Unmerited, not based on us. And if it's not based on us, guess what? It's not dependent on us, and that means you can't lose it. You don't have to to fight and gnaw to, to keep it, but you are going to be preserved in it. You cannot lose it. It is yours. It was yours when you were wicked by God's grace. It is yours now as God has saved you. This is the love beneath our hope. The love that God has shown in history and is showing right now through the proclamation of the gospel. Let me say this to you if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. God is showing you his love right now. Maybe your, your life is in shambles or there's some things going on nobody knows about. You're like, God doesn't love me. Look at my life. Or maybe you look back at at your sin and you say, well, God, there's no way God could love me. Here's what you need to understand. God comes to his enemies in love. And he shows this in the cross. And the verb here, God shows his own love for us, is present tense. That That means that this event in history is meant to be proclaimed in the present always and meant to be looked upon as applicable in the now. Hear it now. God loves his enemies. John Stott draws out an implication this way, one that's pretty basic. How then could we doubt the love of God? We go through all sorts of little problems. We talked about suffering last week. We go through little kinds of suffering. And some of us are more inclined toward complaining than others. Some of us are quicker to get frustrated than others. We go through these times in life and we are tempted by the evil one, the liar, the murderer. We are tempted by Satan to doubt God's love. And so hear this. How then after seeing this, after reading this, after seeing the grounds of our hope that God did this, 
He sent his very own son to die for his enemies, those who hate him. What you see happening at the cross, the pulling out of the beard, the spitting in the face, the smacking, the mocking, that's every person toward God. That's every human soul in rebellion against his or her maker. So we see first the sacrifice for sinners. Now let's move to the security for saints. This is verses 9 to 11. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's a mouthful. That's a ton there. As I've said many times so far in this series through Romans, it is so important that we understand the logic that you understand precisely what Paul is arguing. So much of what God is teaching us hinges, especially here, on understanding the logic. Paul is tying our assurance of salvation. So I've talked to some of you who struggle with assurance of salvation. Man, this is where it's at. People have been telling me for years, I struggle with that a ton Uh, throughout my 20s in particular. And, you know, I would talk with people about it. I I would just get really beat down, burdened with it, just doubting, am I really a believer? And some, some of you have never struggled with that, and some of you have. And people would tell me, you need to read 1 John. You need to read 1 John. And it's true. 1 John is an amazing book to go to to help with assurance of salvation. But this right here is so significant for helping you to understand why you ought to have assurance as a believer. Paul is tying our assurance of salvation to the love he has just described. He has laid the love foundation and now he wants to make clear that our eternal security As Christians, our assurance of salvation is built on top of that foundation. He's laid the foundation work, and now he wants to put the house of your assurance, Christian, on top of it. Two things to consider here. These will be our subpoints here. Two things to consider. First, the certainty of our future. And number two, the confidence in our daily living. So let's look first at the certainty of our future. The certainty of our future. In verses 9 to 10, Paul makes an argument, a well-known argument in the ancient world among rabbis, but among others as well. It is an argument from the greater to the lesser. Or you could say from the heavy to the light. If God has done the greater thing, this is the argument, if God has done the greater thing, the more substantial thing, the more difficult thing, how will he not do the lesser thing? Listen to what he says, verses 9 to 10. Listen carefully. Since therefore 
we have now been justified by his blood, which is what he's gone, gone before to describe, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And, and lest you not understand the first time around, he wants to say a, basically the same thing again in different words. For if, verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Here's what Paul's saying. If that is what God did for his enemies, this is amazing. You have to hear this. Listen, if, if that is what God did for his enemies, What do you think he will do for us now that we are his friends? If he sent his very own son to die for us while we were unjustified sinners, won't he certainly bring us to final salvation now that we are his justified saints? Hello! This is an obvious argument. But how often in our own experience do we not connect the logical dots? Paul is trying to convince you, believer, towards assurance of salvation. He's trying to convince you towards security in who you are in Christ in order that you might go out and live in the Spirit in hope of eternal life. Filled with the life of God, filled with his hope-filled power. And, Paul adds to this, if God justified, justified, mix those words together, justified and reconciled us by his son's death, what do you think he'll do by his son's resurrection life? So that's also going on, right? If he did this for us while we were his enemies, how much more will he do this for us now that we're his precious children and friends? And he's also saying, if this is what God accomplished by his son's death on the cross, then what do you think God is going to accomplish for you by his son's resurrection life? That is why Paul so emphatically says at the beginning of Romans 8, when you finally get there, we could go there right now. But Paul doesn't want to go there yet. He's got much more to say. He wants to heap it up. Still, we have all four of, all three of these chapters, all of chapter 5, all of chapter 6 and 7, before he will say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're meant to be slapped down on your back when you get there. That is why Paul goes there, is because of where he's going here. And at the end of Romans 8, verse 34, listen to what he says at the end of Romans, we've got the passage right after that up on our wall here. But at the very end of this great theological section, Romans 1 to 8, at the very end, verse 34, he says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, you see that? More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If by Christ's death, 
we are reconciled to God and justified, then now with a living, breathing Christ. Right now, he's alive, right this very second. A living, breathing, embodied, glorified, resurrected, enthroned Christ who did not just die in the past, but lives to intercede for us in the present, right now. John 14, 19, Jesus says this, because I live, you also will live. This is why the Christian does not fear death. Because I live, you also will live. Let me say it this way, the joy of Christmas comes from the hope of Easter. Connect the dots this year. Don't let Christmas uh, be without Easter because the very hope that you have is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The joy that you have that is, that is birthed by your hope comes from a living Christ. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is Paul's argument. And it is meant to give us maximum security, maximum assurance that, as Philippians 1.6 says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? Oh, we're a mess sometimes, aren't we? We are. He who began a good work in you will complete it. He's not going to toss you aside. If he sent his son to die for you while you were a wicked rebel sinner, enemy of God, now that you're his precious child, now that you are his dearest friend, how will he not bring you through to the end? How will he not bring you home for the glory of his name, for the glory of his son, and for your good and your future glory? John MacArthur says it this way, if God's grace covers the sins even of his enemies, how much more does it cover the sins of his children? Christian, let me say this to you about Christmas celebration. One of the best ways that you can celebrate Christmas this year is to be fully assured of your salvation. To rest in the love that God has poured out into your heart. If you're a Christian, deep down inside you know it. Deep down inside you know it. The doubts, the gnawing at your soul that makes you feel as though you're just not there. It's on the superficial level. Go beneath that. Because if you are a Christian, the love of God has been profusely poured into your soul, your heart. And you know that you will be with God. You know he's made you new. You know he's adopted you. You know he's your father. You know you relate to him as Abba. The deepest recesses of your soul. And then you have this historical rootedness. 
You have this love of God in Christ that he, he sent his son to die for you as an enemy. And now he loves you as his very own child. Will he not bring you through? Be assured of your salvation. Christian, be assured of your salvation this Christmas. And through that, worship this Christ. Second, the confidence in our daily living. So we're looking at uh, our subpoints under the security for saints. And now we come to the confidence in our daily living. Look at verse 11 again. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I remember when I first started going through this verse, trying to memorize it, it seemed like it, it, I I didn't really understand how verse 11 was related to what preceded. It it just didn't, I, I couldn't quite place it. But when you look at this, In Greek, the participle in verse 11 is a present tense participle. And I don't mean to get all grammatical on you, but I want you to see what's going on here. The reason that Paul says this is he wants to say, look, it's not just future salvation that I'm talking about. It is about present glorying in God. That's exactly what's going on here. And that's seen in the original language. It's, it's, it doesn't come through quite as clearly when you just go through it in English. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. More than that, rejoicing in God in the present tense. Paul is not only concerned with future salvation, that we will not face God's wrath He's not just concerned with the fact that there is no more condemnation for us lying out there, out there in the future. That because we are now justified and reconciled, we will know only life in the future. Paul is not only concerned with this future rest. He is concerned with present joy. Paul is concerned, and the Holy Spirit through Paul is concerned with life lived here and now. He wants Christians to have confidence in daily life. You've seen this, Christian. You sin most when you lose your confidence in what you have in Christ. You see this. You know this, Christian. You, you are more holy. You are more diligent in the word. You are more kind and faithful when you are banking all on what God has promised you. It's the reason why when you, when you meditate on the word and you come across something that reminds you who you are in Christ, you walk away from that and you just, you're just different. When we're not walking in that, breathing that, soaking that in, we fall into the flesh. We must have this present tense boasting confidence, glorying in all that we've been talking about. That is the essence in many ways of the Christian life. It is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the Christian life, as Paul will describe it in a nutshell in Romans 14, 17, which we'll get to in a decade or so. (laughs) Not really. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. So Paul is concerned with the now. 
Hope for today. Joy now through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you a couple of quotes that really tie this together well. So commenting on this verse, Leon Morris says this, that it, what Paul has said here brings out something of the spontaneous exuberance of the Christian life. Would you describe your Christian life in that way? The spontaneous exuberance of the Christian life. It, it struck me back when we did our series on the family and, and we were looking in Ephesians 5. You remember that right before Paul gets to the family, he says, uh, do not be drunk with, with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on to talk about what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And the language he uses there is the language of joy. It's the language of grateful joy in God through Christ. It's exactly what we see here in Romans 5. Spontaneous exuberance in God through Christ chases away sin. So here's the thing. Are you struggling with pornography? Are you struggling with infidelity? Are you struggling with lying or anger or pride, the answer is the same for you. If you are a believer in Jesus, it is spontaneous exuberance in these truths. That will chase away your sin. Your discipline, your resolve sticks. Sticks to the big bad wolf. He'll blow those right over. In fact, it's more like hay. But this, oh, he can't touch this. This is like a rock underneath your Christian life. Listen to John Chrysostom, the early church father, and I'll close with this quote. And so the fact of his saving us, and saving us too when we were in such plight, and doing it, By means of his only begotten, and not merely by his only begotten, but by his blood. Weaves for us endless crowns to glory in. That's what you have to celebrate this year during Christmas. Endless crowns to glory in. Boasting glorying, rejoicing, being joyfully confident in the present tense. Confidence in your daily life because of a hope that is built on the surest foundation. The unmatched, unfathomable love of God through Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we bow before you in humility and just all of what you did before the world began in foreordaining the death of Christ and in him you chose us to be saved. And then in history, To a dark world filled with sin, you sent your Son. And then, 
in our history, in our own stories, you, you apply this redemption. You reconcile us to yourself in our own lives. You pour out your love into our hearts. And then you point us to a verse like this, to a set of verses like this where you say, look, Christian, you will not fall away. I will keep you. You will make it by my grace. Father, we praise you for the gospel and just how a text like this so elucidates the glory of Christmas. We thank you for that, Lord. As we go into this week, we pray that you would help us to love you and to have this spontaneous exuberance every hour, every 10 minutes, every minute by your Spirit to be so full of joy in Christ that the idea of sinning becomes so repulsive that we want to vomit at the thought of wickedness. God, would you so hold us, hold us with these glories, these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.